Mention Handel's Messiah in English-speaking countries, and whether you're talking to musicians, musicologists, ordinary music lovers, or even people who hardly know any classical music, you can be pretty certain what will leap into their minds, possibly into their mouths too. It's hard to think of this without singing it. That must be one of the few pieces of classical music just about everybody knows. There's an old story that Handel composed it after seeing all heaven before his eyes and the great God himself enthroned in splendour. God as King of Kings, and from the sound of that you might say God as the ultimate Georgian monarch, the King of English Kings. It's a roundly Protestant vision, perfectly attuned to the spirit of a prosperous and publicly pious age, perfect for a culture in which, as Samuel Johnson proclaimed, music was the only sensual pleasure without vice. It was also a culture turning away from the worldly delights of opera to the more respectable form of oratorio, spiritual entertainment. The Hallelujah Chorus is the climax of Messiah, and it's superbly placed in the overall scheme by a composer with long experience in the theatre and a sure instinct of what would tell with an audience, now adapted for more virtuous purposes. But if Hallelujah represents for people what Messiah is about, then you could say you're viewing it through the wrong end of the telescope. Take Hallelujah out of context, and it gives a skewed impression of Handel's message. And this becomes clear as we enter the second part of the oratorio. Part one of Messiah is overall a dramatic juxtaposition of darkness and light. Humanity is at first portrayed as a people lost in darkness, to whom a great light dawns, the light of Jesus Christ. Yet the effect of the light dawning in darkness is striking. It doesn't result in self-prostration and flagellation for sin, though repentance is naturally presumed, but something else. The very first word we hear in Messiah is comfort. Comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now the last words of part one tell us that following Christ is not an onerous, painful duty demanding constant self-chastisement, but something rather more joyous. His yoke is easy, his burthen is light. That word light again, but now with a different, if related, meaning. The librettist Charles Jennings was showing there a thoroughly English love of wordplay, double meanings, or you might say puns. Now, as we begin part two, the journey towards Hallelujah follows what to non-Christians might seem a surprising course. The story darkens. We're plunged into a deeper darkness than anything in part one. 
The section opens with a powerfully tragic chorus, with strong overtones of operatic tragic overture. Behold the Lamb of God. Christ as a human being, yet also as a lamb. In Middle Eastern cultures, the lamb is the archetypal sacrificial animal. It's the chosen victim, groomed, in some cases literally groomed, for death. The purpose of Christ's suffering is foreshadowed here. He is the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Christ has to become the sacrifice, the offering for atonement, God in human form, bearing sin for mankind. Yet Handel and Jenin stress not so much the metaphysical dogmatic elements as the human suffering, the humiliation, the degradation of Christ. This is a central feature of Christian teaching. God himself, not enthroned in splendour as in Hallelujah, but reduced to wretched human victimhood. A wonderful alto aria tells us he was despised. And listen for the telling minor key inflection. When we first hear the word grief, it really hurts. After this comes an intensely dramatic recitative, he gave his back to the smiters. Then there follows a kind of three-movement choral symphony in F minor. F minor was an especially dark, painful key in Baroque music. Tuning in Handel's day was still not the modern equal temperament, and the further you got away from C major, the more dissonant, sour, you might say, the tuning gets. Handel exploits that here for expressionistic purposes. 
What I've called this three-movement symphony begins with an urgent largo. Surely he hath borne our griefs, the word grief again. Jennings is being very clever here and cross-referencing between these specially chosen and selected Bible texts. The chorus represents the people looking on with horror and compassion, especially in the fabulously expressive harmonies at the heart of this movement. This chorus comes to a dramatically premature ending in a more hopeful A-flat major, a release perhaps from that burden of sin. But immediately we're plunged back into F minor for an impassioned fugue, and with his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. Still, the focus is on the suffering of Christ, the human cost of that healing. of that fugue is a four-note motif, rather like the Kyrie fugue from Mozart's Requiem, or the A minor fugue from Book Two of Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. It was part of the shared language of musical symbolism in the Baroque era. There was a kind of musical lingua franca of terms that many composers would use, and yet make them entirely their own, as Handel does here. This is a splendid fugue that seems to be driving towards a natural conclusion. Yet again, the music seems to end prematurely. We come to rest on an expectant pause. After which, there's a sudden disconcerting swing to a bright major key. We have jolly, florid choral writing. But the words explain, all we like sheep have gone astray. There's an irony here, the blissful ignorance of the sheep. And especially that's noticeable when we come to the phrase, we have turned. We can hear the music following the straying sheep, wandering off. At the last minute comes a tremendous black reversal, a turn back to F minor. The cost of all this straying is laid plain. And the Lord hath laid on him. Laid what? Handel keeps us waiting till the end. The iniquity of us all.
More portrayals of ignorant, erring humanity follow. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? Christ's sacrifice is held up as offering liberation from all this chaos and unnecessary suffering. We return to the image at the end of part one. His yoke is easy. This is another joyous light chorus, light in both senses. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their yokes from us. All of which is expressed in a freewheeling, heaven-mounting fugue. The sense of climbing towards the light increases in that fugue, and the ascent eventually leads to hallelujah. The king of kings adored here is also the king who submitted himself to become wretched, despised, a human being enduring mockery, torture, and the horror of a Roman crucifixion, even abandonment by God. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart, we are told. A reminder, perhaps, of my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, so poignantly expressed in Bach's Matthew Passion. It adds a completely new context to the vision of Hallelujah. This king is emphatically not a remote monarch. Hallelujah ends part two of Messiah, and it could have been the end of the work. Indeed, the part three that follows this could so easily have been an anticlimax, but it isn't. First of all, humanity responds, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Death wasn't the end for Christ, so it needn't be for humanity. The theology and the human message of comfort are summed up by another remarkable choral sequence. It's not like a symphony this time. There are four parts, but they're squeezed into a much more compact number, closer to a kind of recitative for choir. The words are from St Paul. Since by man came death, the consequence of sin, by man, Christ, came also the resurrection of the dead. Handel now reviews the contrast, for as in Adam, the man who brought sin into the world, all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive.
This spells out the central tenet of the Christian message, the Gospel, and at the same time recapitulates the human drama at the beginning of part two. This is why, when the trumpet sounds, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. All this underlines the paradox expressed in the final chorus. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. We have the pitiful image of the sacrificial lamb. Yet this is precisely the figure who is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. So this final chorus draws together two images symbolised by Handel's two contrasting tempos. Christ abased, despised and rejected is now Christ glorified. This is the word of comfort announced right back at the beginning of part one. And it is to this above all that the chorus responds with the final Amen. It's extraordinary what Handel's achieving here. What could be an abstract, even tortuous theological point, the kind of thing you could imagine spelled out with lapidary exactitude in a Georgian sermon, becomes something alive through Handel's music. Even if you don't accept the theology, Handel's music, schooled in the humanity in the opera house, gives that message flesh. The word is made flesh through music. As the bass sings, behold, I tell you a mystery. And as Handel almost certainly realised, nothing can convey a mystery like music. <laughs> 